If you look at your bulletin and see the title of this sermon, you might want to say, well, the Great Commission to Afflictions. And you might want to say it's maybe time to leave before the sermon. And as we come to this passage in Colossians, I really had planned when I was going to preach on this day to uh, speak from the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ. About two years ago, we had arrived to the end of chapter 19, so we thought we'd take chapters 20, 21, and 22 in these weeks to come, or months and months to come, maybe. But as I read through Colossians afresh and looking at what the ladies are going to be studying, this struck me, this verse. Now, Paul says in verse 24, I rejoice in what was suffered for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. Let's bow and ask for God's blessing as we need the illumination of his Holy Spirit to understand his word. Father, we do believe that if the only place we could ever hear you speak to us, the only place we could ever have your revelation to us would be at the very end of the earth. We would travel there. And yet, Oh, Lord, you have given us that word today, this morning. You speak to us in Jesus Christ. And we ask, oh, Lord, for the illumination of your Holy Spirit. We know we cannot understand your word without your word, the Lord Jesus Christ, illuminating our minds and giving us your truth. We pray now for that blessing of your presence and power. In Jesus' name, amen. What an amazing letter, this letter to the Colossians. Something fascinating for me is that uh, you have a city that was uh, some 2,000 years ago, and it was an important city, and here is a letter being sent to this city church and some interesting facts about that city. In A.D. 60, there was an earthquake that leveled it. So this letter was written sometime before that, And yet, when they rebuilt the city, it never did catch on again. And by the year 400 A.D., it was just a pile of rubble. It didn't exist. So what we have here is three pages that fit on my well-worn pages of my Bible. And uh, 95 verses, four chapters. And we're going to have the ladies studying this for the next months and applying it to their lives, and we're here this morning to hear what this has to say to us uh, that was written for a church 2,000 years ago that doesn't even, a city that doesn't even exist anymore, hasn't existed for a long time. Interesting. Why do we grab hold of this, and we read it, and we study it, and we apply it to our lives? The first words of of this letter say, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. Jesus Christ is the revelation of God. This reality is he arose from the dead. He is the one who is 
proclaimed in this letter as the, the word of God. He is the one who is the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end of God's revelation to us and of what God has done for us. Jesus Christ, he is the great one. The great cities of the world, they pass away. But the word of God abides forever. This Logos, this word of God, Jesus Christ, is forever. And that revelation comes to us in him. Yes, good news. It never passes away, this message. We have come to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. How? Through his word given by the apostles. His great priestly prayer, as we call it, in John chapter 17, it speaks of his praying not just for those 11 apostles who were there with him left. Judas had already left to betray him. But he is praying not only for them, he says, to the Father, but also for all of those who are going to believe through their word, through their message, through their words. We have come to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ through that message they gave. They wrote it down and have given to us. And one of those is this letter to the church in Colossae. So as we look at this, how important it is to realize we have the word of God that was given almost 2,000 years ago, yet it's for us today. They were those who were seeking something more. You remember Pastor John's recent message, how the whole world seems to be thinking, if we could just have something more, we would be satisfied. Not unlike their day, the world we live in. As you read carefully through this letter, there are those who are part of cults and worship of angels and philosophies and all the different Greek teachings and had come in that culture. And it was very real as they were observing religiously certain diets and, and observation of days and events that were important. And by this, they were trying to have a holiness. So when we look at this passage, we have one who is presented, though, beyond all imagination really one in whom we find all the fullness of God himself Jesus Christ who is the very image of the invisible God creator of all things in heaven and on earth he is the one that created all things and for him they exist. He is the one who holds all things together by the word of his power. How can something be more than Christ? Paul proclaims this complete Christ, that Jesus Christ is all that fullness of God, very God of very God, light of light. He is God over all. So when we come to this text, it's a bit troubling it says, verse 24, Now I rejoice in what was suffered for you. I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. Almost seems a little bit, you know, wait a minute. How can we have 
something that's not sufficient in Christ. So certainly we need to see that there is this total sufficiency in Christ. And we'd like to look at that carefully afresh, what we may call propitiation, what Christ did in relation to God, that he turned away God's wrath. But at the same time, there is something here very important that Paul is speaking about, and we need to see that, what is lacking yet for us to fill up as his people, as those who are sent forth. So there's one sense in which I want to pause just for a moment and say what a blessing to be able to be here on Sunday evenings and with these classes on hermeneutics. Sounds kind of lofty, doesn't it? Hermeneutics. The study of how we interpret God's word. And that ultimate hermeneutic is that we can understand God's word in the light of God's word. In his light, we see light. Those dark passages that we're not sure what they're saying, we understand with all the fullness of the canon of scripture, the 66 books of God's word. We have the whole fullness of who is Christ, what has he done? So we we begin with that, the sufferings of Christ, what we'll speak of as his propitiation, his turning away the wrath of God, that was done. And I would emphasize that this morning. We need to see what Christ has done. Now the cross, in verses 21 through 23, it speaks of how we've been reconciled with God. We are holy, it says. We're without blemish. As Paul would say elsewhere, there is no condemnation now to those who are in Christ Jesus. Yes, ring the bell. It's good news. Maybe to help us understand this aspect of propitiation, turn with me back to Romans chapter 3, verse 25. If you know that context, it speaks there in chapter 1 of Romans how that very wrath of God is revealed from heaven in Romans 1.18. And then, yes, upon all those of the, of the world, and then even the Jewish people who had the law and all these good things, they didn't keep it. And God's wrath is likewise upon them. No one is righteous in God's sight. All, in that sense, are under the wrath of God. And then we read how God the Father sets forth Jesus Christ as a propitiation, big word, Probably if we ask everybody to write out a definition of that word, we might not have too many with good definitions. But theologically, it has to do with appeasing God's wrath, turning away the wrath of God that is very real. So when we look at this passage, it's very important. The liberals of the 19th century especially They said, we don't believe in this God of the Old Testament, a God of wrath. We we believe in a God of love and gentleness and just loving everyone. And what Jesus did on the cross is this wonderful example for all of us to be sacrificial, better folk, and really get along with each other. That's what Jesus is all about. But that's contrary to what Paul sets forth here. 
In Romans 3, he is saying, with all the lostness of this world, Jesus Christ was set forth to appease the wrath of God, to turn away that wrath. It's very real. So there was a sense in which, for a while, I think, evangelicals, they had a fear of any, any translation that uh, didn't use the word propitiation everywhere this word appeared in the New Testament. Someone would be suspicious of not really being orthodox. But there's a sense in which we need to realize there's a great deal of depth in this word that's translated often as propitiation. There's the other side of this called expiation. That is the covering of our sins. We remember those words of John the Baptist, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. There's a sense in which unless our sins are expiated, covered over, taken away, paid for, we can't have God being propitiated. We can't have his wrath being appeased. It's only when that takes place, the covering. And it's important that we see this because there's a sense in which that Old Testament background from Exodus 25, verse 22, it speaks of that covering of the Ark of the Covenant, that sheet of gold, that covering, that which the old translators and new translate as the mercy seat. It was that which covered over, yes, and there was the very place where God said, I will meet with you in that place at that time. We use that expression, yon, yon, kuper, kuper, or that element of the day of his covering, the day of his atonement. And there is that looking to see how that day in which God did meet in a special way, and there was that day of atonement when Christ covered over our sins, and he also propitiated the wrath of God. He turned it away. There is something very powerful in all of this as we look at the whole of Scripture. I often think of how going through, in Hebrew, I remember going through Psalm 22 and carefully going through it, and then it was suggested to us in class that we also go through it in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Psalms. And so we went through that, and when I got to the end, it had this wonderful identity with what Christ said on the cross. At the end of Psalm 22, it says, to a people not yet born, it will be declared, he has done it. You remember those words, the same root word is used by Jesus on the cross, that to tell us die. And it wasn't just kind of a dying word, it was something, yes, it is finished. I'm reminded of the privilege of baptizing about a dozen people on an occasion here. Two of them were my grandsons. And uh, they always remember the title I gave them the sermon. The title was Golasso. Now, there might not be too many who know what that means, but these soccer players 
in Latin America. That means you put the goal through, not just a goal, but it's the one that did it all. It's over. It was gone in. Golasso. Christ has finished it. He's done it. He covered over, take, took away our sins, and he's propitiated God in his wrath. Nothing more you could add. I could add. Good works. They're as filthy rags. He's done it all. So when we come to this verse, we need that background. And I believe we need to focus when we come to this verse on the sufferings of Christ as being part of the proclamation of the gospel. Not adding to the propitiation of God, but the proclamation of the gospel itself to the nations. The Great Commission. The gospel is free grace, but it costs to proclaim it to all the peoples of the earth. It costs with afflictions, grand, great tribulation to take the gospel to all the languages of our planet. Maybe going back to Paul's conversion is helpful for us to understand this passage. Paul's conversion, you know, is related, I think, three times in the book of Acts. And it's fascinating because how he goes back to that, the importance of that. Acts chapter 9, it I believe, points us to the sufferings of the propagation, the proclamation of the gospel. Something changed everything. You remember his name, Saul. He was breathing out murderous threats. He had put Christians in prison. He was involved holding, he was involved in the stoning of Stephen. This is one who is a persecutor of Christians. Something took place changed everything. This one hears that voice. This light comes upon him and he says, who are you, Lord? And look with me at Acts chapter 9. Look at those words afresh. Acts chapter 9 verse 16. Start with verse 15. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. There was something involved in this propagation, in the proclamation of this gospel that has to do with afflictions. You can't separate that proclamation from the reality that there's afflictions attached to the proclamation of this gospel. Paul was filling up the afflictions of Christ in fulfilling the great commission to carry Jesus' name before Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. How? It's speaking here of his not filling up the propitiation, the expiation of our sins or the propitiation of God, but rather the propagation, the proclamation of Christ to the world. So we take the gospel. 
this, this wonderful gospel we have, it comes, though, with great tribulation. Through all the ages, there has been great tribulation when the gospel goes forth. There's an involvement here. In fact, you know, you read in the book of the revelation of Jesus Christ of the 144,000 representing all the people of God of the Old Testament and the New Testament of all times, all those who look forward to his coming and those who look back and trust in the Savior, all, the fullness of it all, 12 times 12, 144, 144,000, all the redeemed of the Lord, yes, they will come. There is a wonder in all that taking the gospel to them is one of a time of afflictions. We are those who now in this that is the last day. From that very time Christ came, the last days began. And in these last days, there are those times of great affliction. Read with me from Matthew 24. I think familiar words to us. Matthew 24, beginning with verse 9. Jesus, then you will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death, and you will be hated by all nations because of me. At that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other, and many false prophets will appear and deceive many people because of the increase of wickedness. The love of most will grow cold, but he who stands firm to the end will be saved, and this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Afflictions, they are real. They're real today. It's not something for some strange time, but it's part of the last time. God has spoken in other times, but in these last days, he speaks to us, and we have a message for all peoples, our neighbors around us, our family members, and they may reject us. But it's important that we speak that word. If we read of the Apostle Paul's afflictions, 2 Corinthians has that element of chapter 11, verses 21 through 27. Read through those. He says, I can't even count the times I was beaten. I was left for dead. All that he goes through, we have to almost ask ourselves, is he a lunatic? Is there something crazy about this man? But Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. It's all real. He's getting out a message for all the nations that people of all the nations would worship him, the Lord Jesus Christ. 2 Timothy 3.12 teaches us that all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Not for our right standing before God, but if we are right with God, we will live godly lives, and so we will suffer afflictions, persecution. It's a reality. When we speak of the atonement of Jesus, I think it's very important that we understand 
what a wonderful atonement it is. It is sufficient. There's not a thing we could add more to it. I remember when I was about 17, a dear friend came back from Scotland and he gave me, carried in his luggage, six late great volumes published in the 19th century of Matthew Henry. And I can remember reading those morning and night, and it was, you know, it was like I didn't know you could buy them in a store somewhere. These old ones are at much more, little small print. But I remember reading there about the sufficiency of the atonement of Jesus Christ. His atonement is sufficient for as many worlds of sinners as there are sinners in the world. It is sufficient to save sinners. Yes, for as many worlds of sinners as there are sinners in the world. It is complete. But you must come to him or it won't do you any good for eternity. You must come to him for only in him is God's wrath turned away. Only in him are your sins expiated, covered over. So there is that reality that even today, this morning, if you're not in Christ Jesus, as John 3.36 tells us, we're living under the wrath of God. It's a serious element that we need to awaken to. We might ask the question, how long are these afflictions to go on? We read earlier that passage of those under the altar crying out, how long, O Lord? And their answer back, the answer that came back was until there's the complete number of all those who are going to give their witness, who are going to, yes, give their witness in such a way that they are sacrificially giving that witness. Until all their number is complete. How long until that number is complete? Now someone might ask the question, is God's prophetic watch, I can remember sermons on that, in my childhood, God's prophetic clock has stopped. Well, let me tell you, his clock is running just fine. God is not late in his work. We read in 2 Peter 3, 9, I believe it is, that God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. It is his, yes, his attribute, his pleasing. Yes, it is his will that all his own will come to him. And yes, one day to him as is a thousand years, his clock is run very differently than ours. The days of God's calendar are marked off one by one by the blood of his witnesses. Very real, this. I would recommend to us all to read afresh something the history of Christ's church. I have an old volume that was given to me by a best friend. Fox's Book of Martyrs, it really, you know, the original volume, <coughs> I think, came out with about 900 pages. Then I think it was uh, expanded to 2,300 pages. And uh, all the history of the church, really the history of the church has something to do with that story of those who gave their lives sacrificially, those who witnessed in all the places of the earth. The history of the church is right there ticking off those days as they give themselves to that wonderful thing of telling the gospel to others. Now, 
I have just a couple questions. One, concerning the sufferings of Christ, is there a purpose for all of this? If we read on the words of the Apostle Paul in the letter, beginning there, we have verse 25, I have become its servant by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness, the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the saints. To them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So there's something of this wonderful presentation of the word of God to his church, to the nations, to the Gentile world. And then certainly, as you go on to verse 28, it says there, we proclaim him, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone perfect or mature in Christ. To this end, I labor, struggling with all his energy, which so powerfully works in me. So there's that struggling with all Christ's energy, which so powerfully works in me. There was a hymn as a teenager that we would sing as a choir. There was about 50 of us, and I remember we would get up on Sunday evening. It was one of the hymns we would sing in the church in Phoenix. Am I a soldier of the cross? And I think there was a, what I might say a, kind of a small band of us young guys. We were all 17, 18, 19, even a little more, a few of us. And we would sing that hymn afterwards even, that hymn that is really, I think, a, a great question. Am I a soldier of the cross, a follower of the Lamb? And shall I fear to own his cause or blush to speak his name? We need boldness, boldness with wisdom. There's no place for being a Christian and being obnoxious. Oh, if I could only have affliction from these people, if they could get angry with me, wouldn't that be wonderful? Whoa, we're told to tell the gospel with gentleness, with loving kindness, considering people, caring for them, being compassionate, compassionate as Christ is compassionate with us. No place for being a bigot and stubborn and obnoxious. The hymn goes on, Must I be carried to the skies on flowery beds of ease while others fought to win the prize and sailed through bloody seas? Is this just for missionaries out there or, or pastors of small churches struggling? Or is it for all Christians? Something of filling in the afflictions of taking the gospel to our neighbors, taking the gospel to the ends of the earth, at work, standing up for the name of Jesus Christ. It speaks there, I believe, of our being, yes, persecuted for Christ's sake, his name, not for our being offensive in ourselves. Are there no foes for me to face? The hymn writer says, sure, I must fight. And what he's saying here is important. He's really saying what the Apostle Paul was saying to Timothy. Endure hardship with us. 
like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. You know, isn't there a sense in which I think we're pretty good at identifying with our sport teams, whether it's basketball or, or baseball or, or whatever it may be, or, or football. Wow, we almost can tell people about what our team is. Or, or the political world, here is my man. Yes, we identify publicly. We're ready to sacrifice. I, I remember uh, the first time I went to Brazil, I, it, it worked out just exactly as uh, I was in Los Angeles and they were playing the World Series and there it was on TV and there's what some of you have watched sometime or another. Kurt Gibson hit this home run as he limps up to bat the one time he bats in the whole game and the ball goes out of the park. And the Dodgers, kind of on that, say they, that's what inspired them to win the World Series. Well, it was sometime before that that Kurt Gibson got angry with the whole team and said, hey, I'm willing to sacrifice everything to be champions of the world, the World Series. Are we with any element of sacrifice in our lives? Am I? That final question, what are we living for? Am I living in the light of eternity? Is there something of that bigger picture that I am living for that's real in who I am, how I think, and how I relate to everyone? We're going to sing in a moment this great majestic hymn for all the saints. We would sing it. Uh, we don't have Dave Perry here this morning, but he would remember maybe, uh, I don't know, any of the others that graduated from the Center for Biblical Training or from the seminary. We would always on Sunday evening have the graduation and, and they would sing that at the end for all the saints. And it gave us something of that big picture. We're gathered together. We're going to suffer. Whatever the afflictions are, we're ready to go forward with the gospel to the ends of the earth. pulled out that volume of Fox's Book of Martyrs in these days and uh, wanted just to read some pages and pages and pages of that history. Well, I opened up the front page and it was given to me by my best friend for so many years. He's with the Lord now. About three years ago, he, he went into glory and uh, has some wonderful words of dedication in the first part of this. Then he has these words about the battle we need to be in. Adams, he says, we need to be defeating. We need to be in the battle against sin, death, Satan, and hell by his eternal word and son. And then he says, your friend in Christ throughout eternity. Do you realize we have something so big, nothing else in all the world is comparable. We have eternal life. Somehow or another, we have in our mind the American dream. If all of life could just be smooth, every problem smoothed out, everything just goes perfect, we are the perfect, nice group of people. But that's not New Testament Christianity. There's a battle to be fought. There's afflictions to be endured. There's a gospel to be spread. There's a wonderful privilege that we have. And yet, in the midst of it all, our dwelling place is in Christ.
We have eternal life. We are friends with him and with one another throughout eternity. Wow. That's, that's the good life. That's the real thing. Forever. We have that. The wonderful word here of Paul when he says to labor, struggling with all Christ's energy, which so powerfully works in me. We have that privilege to be living in that way. That hymn towards the end has these words, O may thy soldiers, faithful, true, and bold, fight as the saints who nobly fought of old, and win with them the victor's crown of gold. That's the hymn we'll sing. Alleluia, alleluia. We have already the more in Christ. We have already throughout eternity, eternal life in Christ. Nothing can get any better. It's good in him. Let's pray. Oh, Lord God Almighty, we do desire your blessing upon us. We do desire the blessing upon our families. We do desire that you would bless us and, and keep us. And yet at the same time, Lord, we find ourselves so easily, someone could take down our prayers as a summary that we would all just have a smooth life. Lord, we do find ourselves so often sure of what is good for us what is the good and happy life, we ask that you would remind us, remind us with your wise love and your great plan certainly includes afflictions. Even as we pray right now, O oh Lord, we pray that you would, if it be your will, even afflict us with hunger that we might have something of our heavenly, our heaven on earth spoiled a bit so that we see the greater glory of life eternal in Christ. We do ask, O oh Lord, that you'd be with us as a congregation, that you would call us and feed us even with, with that hunger, that you would bring us closer to yourself even in the midst of afflictions. Give us something of a sacrificial heart and life and mind and working together for the glory of Christ to all peoples around us here in Mesa, even to the ends of the earth. We do rejoice. We do pray, O oh Lord, so touch our hearts that we will be able to, with the Apostle Paul, say, now I rejoice in the sufferings that you have given to me. Help me, Lord to have even my things that I think are more important than you are, to be spoiled and seen for what they are, that Christ may have the preeminence in my life. Help us, O oh God, as a congregation to be committed to you afresh. In Jesus' name we do pray.